Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Jo Francis Penn, and today I'm talking with Nadine Slavinsky about sailing across the Pacific and the joys and challenges that Nadine and her family faced along the way, as well as the cultures they experienced and how those places inspired stories and further trips. It was also interesting to hear about the more practical aspects of working up to such a long passage and how you can achieve a huge lifelong dream if you just take it step by step. Back in episode one, I talked about how sailing on a tall ship from Fiji to Vanuatu in the South Pacific helped change the direction of my life, and I still vividly remember my hours on watch at the bow. Nadine's words brought back those memories, and her description of the stars at night over the Pacific are magical. I hope you enjoy the interview today. Nadine Slavinsky is an archaeologist-turned-teacher whose sailing adventures inspire her fiction and non-fiction books. Welcome, Nadine. Thank you so much. Great to be here. I'm excited to talk to you today. So let's start with your book, Pacific Crossing, which in itself just brings to mind all these different things. So what is the coconut milk run and what are some of your highlights from that trip? I guess a milk run refers to in the old days, a milkman would go and do the standard route. So sailors speak of crossing the Atlantic as the milk run, because over time and through, over the centuries, really, up through the modern day, there's kind of a standard way to do it. And the same goes for the Pacific. So the Pacific version so to, or the route is, is known as the coconut milk run, but it's probably better envisioned as stepping stones. There's a very logical route across the Pacific The wind goes more or less from east to west, taking you on your way, and it leads you. You almost can't help but following a certain route across the Pacific. So about the first half of the Pacific, you, in a way, don't have a choice. So very most 99% of sailors these days leave, well, as they have for centuries, leave from Panama. And then it's uh, for a boat, like we had a 35-foot sailboat. We, it took us a week to get to the Galapagos from there. Then is the big open part, the biggest, longest piece of the Pacific. It took us 28 days from Galapagos to get to the Marquesas. So now you're in the French territory and so on and so on. So then you go across the Marquesas, the Tuamotos, the Society Islands. Then you get into the direction of Samoa, eventually the Cook Islands, Tonga, Fiji, and, and then onto New Zealand or Australia. Then the route splits a little bit after the Society Islands. But it's it's kind of the standard route. And it's as a non, or even as a sailor, you might be surprised how many people are actually out there doing it. We were, we sailed, my husband and I, with our then seven-year-old son. And there are a number of families in their boats sailing the same route. And you basically, you buddy up and you have a buddy boat and you see, you kind of, 
you meet in the Galapagos and you're like, okay, we'll see you in the Marquesas in a month from now. And then you, then you might meet in an anchorage and spend some time together like that. So that's roughly how it works. Already I'm like, oh, all these different places. So you mentioned, for example, the Marquesas have a, a French uh, feeling. I think some of the other Pacific islands do. But what are some of the different cultures that you see on the route? Yeah, it's so many <laughs> from the indigenous cultures that you're leaving behind in Panama to the Galapagos, where you've got you've got the Ecuadorians coming over from the mainland, and then all of a sudden, so you, you're speaking Spanish at the at that part of the trip, and all of a sudden you've kind of flip a switch and go into you speak French and they speak French, but of course they have their island languages as well. And apparently, from what I understand, so Tahitian is the language spoken in Tahiti. And if you're from the Marquesas, I think it's a little bit like uh, me talking to you or, or sorry, worse, me talking to a Texan or, <laughs> or somebody from Glasgow. I think that was the hardest accent I ever had to, to try to make out. So they can uh, talk to each other, but it sounds a little different. And as you forget further west, you get more into Melanesian cultures instead of Polynesian cultures. So the whole flavor kind of changes gradually as you go. There's that land aspect but there's also that it's, it's really interesting if you obviously if you look at the map of the Pacific, it looks empty in quote unquote. But of course, it's not. It's mostly water. Yes, but it has these little tiny dots of islands. But we spent almost almost as much time in between. And that's just the beauty of sailing to me is that those 28 days that we spent getting to the Marquesas in the first place, you're at sea 24 hours. You never stop. Right. So for 28, 28 days, you just you don't see land. And you're taking turns being on watch because it's not like, you know, you just close the door and go to sleep somehow, right? Somebody's always awake, search, looking at the horizon. And as you travel, you know, you're in the, not the footsteps, but the wake, I suppose, of so many sailors through history, through centuries before you. And then eventually, you know, that the island appears on the horizon and you see the mountaintop. Or first you see the clouds and then you might see the mountaintop and you'll see birds and at some point, the smells hit you. So you kind of, you have this obviously great excitement getting to any place that you travel like that, that takes a long time, like walking, maybe like biking, where you've really earned it in a way. And then you get there and you're really ready to explore where you've landed. I've done one blue water trip, seven days from Fiji to Vanuatu a long time ago now. And though the seven days of out of sight of land, as you say, that that's quite a magical time. And I remember the time on watch quite well because there's the, the ocean to look at, but actually there wasn't much else. <laughs> but it was a very meditative time. But this was on a much bigger boat with a lot of crew. And of course, this is just you and your husband and your son. So how how does that work? You'd Like you say, 24 hours on watch and off and sleeping and navigating and all those things. How did you do that? And is that a very stressful time or is that actually quite relaxing and meditative as well? It can be both. And, and the length of the passage has nothing to do with it. The weather, <laughs> you are a slave to the weather much more than we are in our cozy lives here in our secure homes with, with the walls that keep out the wind and the heating or the air conditioning. So you're really at the mercy of the weather. And for us, that 28-day passage was the first two days were kind of rough leaving the um, Galapagos. There's a lot of swirling currents and a lot of contrary winds as you go through the intertropical convergence zone and then you get out of that. And then the rest was just magic, just 26 days of pure magic where it was just steady, you know, the dream of, of the trade winds. They're just sailing, uh, pushing you along as you go. So how it works is we did four hour watches. So 
for example, I would be six in the morning to 10 in the morning would be me. So my husband could sleep at that time. Then he would do 10 in the morning to two in the afternoon. So I was off and then two to six and six to 10 in the night. And now we're getting into night, right? So one of us would then be asleep and then you, you wake up the other person at 10 p.m. And they're on watch until two in the morning. And then the other person comes on at six in the morning. So you're, so it's just the two of us because our son was too young to, he would come up <laughs> and sleep next to us, sit, sleep next to us while we kept watch sometimes. But so it's just the two of us in that 24 hour constant cycle. And it takes a few days to fall into that, but it, as long as the weather's good, it can be relaxing. So if you add it up, technically you're on for 12 hours, but technically you have 12 hours off. So you could sleep as much as you want but it's broken up into maximum four hour chunks and you don't. So in a small sailboat, I, I think people imagine being behind the, the wheel and, uh, and looking at the sails and such. So you, we had a self steering device. So it's not, it's, I love the beauty of these things. It, it wasn't electric. It's not powered at all. Little like a mini sail off the back of your boat that goes to its own little rudder and you can set that and it steers the boat on a constant course to the wind so you don't actually have to stand there and sail. So the four hours that I'm, I was on, let's say in the middle of the night, you come up, I had my three cookies that I got <laughs> for, for midnight watch. And you come up, you scan the horizon regularly. We just spent the entire four hours in the cockpit. You might be reading a book, but you're always in the cockpit, always keeping a lookout because there might be other boats, uh, fishing boats. Of course, in the Pacific, we hardly, we saw a boat maybe every four days, a light you know, on the horizon kind of thing. But mostly it's just you and you and the stars. And the stars are probably the most magical thing. And specifically on that trip, what was so amazing to me is I think we were roughly going on a line of about six degrees south of the equator and going from east to west. Once we got away from the Galapagos, going towards the Marquesas. And that is a latitude where you can see the Southern Cross. So picture yourself, you're sailing forwards, which is going to, which is west, and to your left on the Southern horizon is a Southern cross. And on, on your right in the North, you can still see Polaris, the North star. And to me, it was just, it was just magical. It was almost like being a little airport runway in the sense of, you know, that they have the lights to guide them to stay on course. And just how many places in the world can you see both at once? Not very many. And to just kind of, yep, steady, the one is always in the north and one is always in the south. Because obviously with Earth rotation, the stars move at night, but those two are pretty much, they appear almost fixed. So it's just really magical. On the other hand, <laughs> going from, that was 28 days of almost bliss. Going from Fiji to Vanuatu was just, I think, three or four days. No, the worst one was Vanuatu to New Caledonia. It was only three days horrendous three days. <laughs> we had squalls, we had really rough seas. And, and a lot has of that, interestingly, it doesn't just come from a storm, but the underwater profile. So all of a sudden, there's a lot of seamounts in that. So you might look at it as an open stretch of ocean, but between Vanuatu and New Caledonia, which is, so now that's over in the Western Pacific, as you're getting more towards Australia, it's a very rough patch of water because these underground underwater seamounts actually kick up as, as the waves pass over them, even though they're still hundreds of feet below, it's a very unsettled surface. So the, the comfort level has nothing to do with the length of the passage. It's entirely to do with the weather and the conditions. 
Yeah, it's so interesting because, of course, I think all of us would love the dream and the trade winds and the stars and the occasional dolphin, and that would just be wonderful. But of course, as you mentioned there, the the weather and the stress of the other times, and I think that's what makes a lot of people afraid. Certainly makes me afraid. I mean, I was terribly seasick in the first 24 hours, and there's a lot of primal fear about being out on the ocean like that. So how have you tackled those fears and overcome these challenges? Yes, yeah, excellent question. And I, in a sense, I never got over, I, I'm not a fearless person. And you do meet those people that just set off and they have, you know, they're only excited and they have no fear. Every time, right before we set off a passage, I had butterflies, you, know, you couldn't eat. <laughs> no matter how many we sailed for, we lived on a boat for a total of four years. We sailed all the way from uh, we, as far east in Greece to as far, well, east, <laughs> it's all circle, but that's how I view it, all the way to Australia. And every time we left uh, for a new passage, I was still, I had that butterfly nervous feeling and you, it's that fear of the unknown, but that's what you do it for kind of, right? Because we think about our, in some ways, you know, here we are on lockdown, you have, a, you develop a routine and routines are very healthy in some ways, but of course, a lot, we also talk about wanting to get out and to escape that. So there's that. Another really important driver to me, despite all those fears, is very natural fears. Well, first, of course, I would talk myself, you know, tell yourself the, the practicality. And apparently, statistically, sailing is sail safer than driving on a highway. I totally believe that. And I believe it's even, I was told it was safer statistically than playing golf. <laughs> <laughs> you got to remember that. <laughs> but my greatest um, driver, in a sense, is as my father. Um, my father was born behind the Iron Curtain and he escaped as a young man, came to America. He was always dreaming about sailing and he always talked about someday I'll sail around the world. And that's how I learned to sail with my dad and very small, very old beat up boats, just, just off the beach kind of thing. And it was always his dream. And so I kind of got that dream and I read the books that he read, Thor Heyerdahl and all these kind of sea adventure books. And I couldn't wait to go someday. And sadly, when I was 15 and he was 45, he got cancer and he died. So he never got to realize that dream. And of course, at a young age, that, that leaves a big impression on you. It took until I was 35, but I did it. <laughs> I didn't sail around the world, but I sailed three, two thirds of the way across uh, around the world. And that fear of not accomplishing it, it was always the biggest driver that of course, sometimes it's healthy to back out. You know that you're just off the tip of Everest and you really should turn back and you're so tempted. You're like, oh, but I'm so close. So of course, there are moments when it's safer not to go. But in that general fear of the unknown, that always got me over the hump that, I, you know, this has always been my dream and here I am accomplishing it. Not just for me, maybe for him in a way too. Mm. And okay, so you you did start sailing young there with your dad, but did you do specific training for these longer passages? Did you work up to the bigger trip over years? Or I mean, it, it, how did you address that? Because obviously, there's a lot, even though you have the technology, you know, you have a self steering, you mentioned, and there are navigation tools that mean you don't need to use the stars. But did you train specifically for the longer journey? Yeah, it was always a dream for so long. And even before I married my husband, I was talking about it. <laughs> and he was the practical one going, yeah, yeah, maybe someday. <laughs> so we're maybe a good combination as I'm the dreamer and he's the practical one. <laughs> so over years until I, we finally convinced him to really take the plunge, we did work our way up. And, and if anybody's, I, I know you have a mixed audience, but if anybody's thinking by, about doing it, 
I really recommend working your way up because you, you meet people along the way who give up, who have a terrible experience because they jump in at the deep end and they didn't work up. So what we did is we, um, we chartered uh, and the first charter we took was like a group charter. So like everybody had their own sailboat. There were like 10 different sailboats, but one of them had a professional crew and they would meet in the morning and they would say, okay, today we're going from here to there in Greece and, and so on. So you kind of had a safety net. Another time we chartered and we paid for, we were starting to feel more confident about a bigger boat and navigating on our own in unknown places. So we actually took a charter where the first three days we had a captain, a professional captain with us, make it kind of, and we did everything right kind of thing. He, and that just gave us the extra confidence. And then he stepped off the boat and we had the rest of the week to ourselves. We volunteered to help deliver boats. We did that in the Mediterranean and that really helped us get the overnight so getting overnight is the most critical thing. It's one thing to sail inside of land, but to sail off at night and navigate by lighthouse blinking and you know, that kind of thing. So we did, a, I think, a five-day five passage in the Mediterranean. And then when we finally bought our boat, we bought our boat in Mallorca, and we kept it in Sardinia. So that was a three-day trip. So we did short little trips like that. So we did 24-hour trip. We do a 72-hour trip. And Mediterranean was a very good proving ground, as is, let's say, the Caribbean. And we worked our way up. So it's, at some point, yes, you, you do have to take the plunge. So at one point, we're in Greece, and we're looking to, at Malton that was seven days away, and, and that seemed like forever. And, of course, it's uh, many, many, like a year later, we got to Panama, and you're looking across the Pacific, and the Pacific is a whole different ballgame. So it was, it's, you know, many thousands of miles across and no chance to resupply for, you really have to be independent for very long stretches. So we definitely worked our way up and that really gave us the confidence that we weren't doing something crazy for us or for our child. And in fact, it, really, it was one of the most magical times of our lives. Just the three of us together on a boat, you know, before that, my husband was going off to business travel all the time. We were like three people. Even my son was kind of like a worker, right? Going to kindergarten. You go in three different directions. You spend the day completely apart on a boat. Of course, you might think, okay, you're spending it too much together, but you get used to it. And we felt it was really magical to be a team, the three of us together. And we each had our little roles that we, you know, some were better than others. <laughs> but that, and that is something that has stayed with us for years. So it's been a couple of years now. We got back in 2014 from Australia, where we eventually we sailed to Australia, sold our boat there and flew back. But that has never left us. And I think that's the precious thing that I can really take out of this is you, you're constantly problem solving. You're constantly encountering fears and issues also, this is broken or that's broken, or where are we going to get water? And you work through it together. And I think it's also valuable for a child to see their parents grapple. You know, a lot of times your parents might go to the kitchen, close the door and talk about the serious issues, right? Mm. And we, we had all those conversations, right, with our son there, you know, big storm coming, what do we do? Or should we leave now? Or should we stay at this island, et cetera, et cetera. So that was another really magical aspect, actually. And I wondered, because, uh, I mean, you mentioned magical and I was thinking again of that sort of looking out the stars and that time on watch. And once you're more confident with the practicalities, which, as you talked about, really great way to learn uh, in the way that you did it. So once you're comfortable and you're sitting there and you're enjoying it, did you have any sort of spiritual experiences? Because I, I definitely felt 
when I did my little bit of it that I understood much more why pretty much every culture has gods of the sea and spirits of the ocean and things like that because you do feel and maybe it's a bit about being out of control and realizing everything's bigger than you but did, did you have that sort of spiritual aspect of the journeys? I would say not so explicitly that I put it in that category in my mind, but very much that vulnerability mixed with um, sense of wonder of being this tiny, tiny speck on a very big sea, (laughs) completely exposed to whatever fates or whatever you want to call it, to whatever it, it pushes your way. There's there's that aspect. And certainly 28 days out of sight of land where you wake up in the middle of the night to do your four hours and you're just looking at you're not just looking at the stars, you're thinking about all kinds of things. So it gives you that time for introspection. And then you of course our interactions with different cultures on different islands. I think we'll get to talking about Vanuatu later, just seeing the world through other people's eyes or getting glimpses at least through some people are very spiritual or or very just a different sense of, you know, where, what is my place in the world? It's very easy in the Western world. You know, I'm the center of my universe, aren't I? <laughs> and when you live in a boat or if you live in a very small island in the middle of Pacific, you realize that, no, you're not. The, okay, in a way, you're the center of your universe, but you realize how, how big that universe is and how far it goes beyond you. You, you mentioned Vanuati there and ha- having been there, it, I still remember it very well. We sailed in and as you mentioned, the the shallows there and navigating through the coral reefs and stuff. And we arrived and amusingly, some of the villagers came out in uh, canoes. And, uh, you know, you have this terribly Western view of people coming out in canoes and then they arrive and there's this Nike swoosh, just do it on the end of one of the canoe paddles, <laughs> you know, sort of stenciled on. And then this was back in 19. 19- 1999 so it wasn't cell phone tastic but everyone has cell phones now but it was we walked up the Ambrim volcano and I I had no real idea of what the Pacific Islands were like except for these sort of golden sand beaches so I wondered what else you experienced that people might be surprised about yeah and Vanuatu is a great example because I didn't even I'd never even heard of Vanuatu before even as a sailor even reading so many different accounts and dreaming and looking at maps. My attention, you know, you always hear about Tahiti and the Society Islands and maybe the Galapagos and places like Fiji. We've all seen the images. And then there's Vanuatu, which I think was the New Hebrides before it became an independent country. And its its proper name is Vanuatu. And it's to us, it was like stepping into a National Geographic magazine. That's how we saw it. And yes, there are some, you know, one out of 20 people might be wearing shoes and there might be Nikes. So yes, the outside world is coming in, but there's still so traditional. And there's, I think, a gradient from south to north. So Vanuatu is a country made up of little islands spread out north to south, very much linear north to south. And it's as big as Germany from north to south. And yet it's made up of these tiny little islands that are, and they're about 10, 20, 30 miles apart, maybe more as you go further north. Yeah, more like 30 miles apart. And these are not seagoing people. These are Melanesian people who aren't sea, uh, don't have a big seafaring tradition. So each island is, has, is quite isolated and it has its own little mini culture. So it's not like they're going back and forth between different islands. So every, uh, so it, within Vanuatu, so every island is kind of its own little world, its own little, not country, but very different from each other. So 
it, what you learn on one island, you can't necessarily apply to all the islands. So we came, our first stop was the southernmost island of the chain, which is called Anatom. And it's very jungly, it's very thick, jungly, and um, people living in very simple houses with materials that you can just get out of the, the, the woods next to your house. But there's this underlining uh, feeling of how different it is. So one thing is, fascinating place. It used to be a colony of England and France. It's, as far as I know, it's the only place England and France ever cooperated on anything. <laughs> um, and it was known as the condominium government. But the joke is it was the pandemonium government. <laughs> and it's been an independent country since the 70s. But it's that legacy remains in the fact that everybody, well, 90% of people that I met spoke the island language, English, French, and the language of Islam, a beautiful language, it's kind of like pidgin English. So what that means is you can go to this completely different National Geographic type place where just a primal place, and yet you could talk to everybody. And I could talk to them in English, thank goodness, because I didn't, you know, it's due to their language skills, not mine. The Swiss sailor, one of the Swiss sailors we knew, he preferred French. They could just switch into French for him. So it was very accessible superficially. <laughs> so you think, wow, this is great. We can talk to everybody. We can understand the culture. But the longer you spend it, the more you understand what's under the surface. So just a quick example. That first island we got to, Anatom, we have a little cruising guide and it said, oh yeah, this is a good hike you can do not very far away from the village. So we went to the village and we asked, there's four men sitting there that we came across. And we said, oh, we heard there's a waterfall. Can you tell us the way to the waterfall? Would we really like to go there? And this, they fall silent. And they're all looking at each other. And nobody comes up with an answer for a long time. And you're wondering, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with the waterfall? And the first guy finally goes, well, you know, the waterfall is really far. And the second guy goes, yeah, yeah. And, it's, and it's, it, it's, it's not a good track. It's pretty dangerous to get up there. And the third guy looks at them and goes, yeah, and it's also private property. And then the fourth guy, this, you, you feel like they're slowly getting at the truth. And the fourth guy finally comes out with, and the spirits will get you. So, so and we had to ask. And so this island, there, this very strong belief in the spirits. I think it's the, the ancestors that are there. So they weren't actually against us going to the waterfall, but they were truly worried for our safety that A, we would, wouldn't get lost and B, we wouldn't you know, fall on a rock, but C, that the spirits wouldn't get us. And so to finally, they, they, we solved this problem with their help. They got us two guides, in fact. So the first guide was a guy whose family owns that first piece of land. Now, this is just to us, it's jungle with a little foot trail going through it. To him, it's, it's clearly his, you know, he knows the beginning and the end of this land that has no fences. And the first guy, his, his, his family owned that land so he could get us safely across that piece of land so the spirits would be okay with us and take us up to the invisible boundary to the next property line where the second guide then took over and took us to the waterfall and kept us safe. And just that was just a little blink into the, the belief system there. And then when we went to the next island, Aramango, there was another hike we wanted to do. And by then we thought, oh, we've learned what to do. So we go up to the village and say, oh, we really like to do this hike. Could, could you perhaps help us find a guide? And they look at us and they look at each other and they're like, why do you need a guide? Just go up there. So it's, it's totally different on every different island. Just a fascinating, fascinating place. 
Oh, that's great. And and I love that because the attitude is uh, when traveling is obviously, yes, we want to explore, but also to respect the local tradition and the local area. And, and you were trying to do everything. And I think what's funny in these places, I, I've come across this too, is the, the people really want to help you and everyone's mostly 99.9% of people are wonderful, right? And they want to help you and they really do want to prevent you from probably just messing up and being foreigners, offending the spirits or offending somebody. And they're, they're doing it in a sort of caring manner. So that's that's great. And I did I wanted to ask you about Panama as well, because your novel, The Silver Spider, is based around the Panama Canal. And I, I find it funny because I live near a canal in Bath in England, which is nothing like the Panama Canal (laughs) and the word I feel like the word should not be used for two such different things so tell us a bit about the Panama Canal and and Panama I know it's a a big topic but what inspired you to write about that area in particular yeah Panama is just it's such an amazing place I mean I can say that about every place we go to yes of course and everybody in its own special way but Panama and even the canal is a big part of it obviously that's what physically brought us there and that's what you know about Panama. Um, but Panama is just, I almost couldn't, I couldn't almost not write, <laughs> not let my imagination go wild there because you've got, first of all, you've got all the cultures of the world mixed. You've got indigenous people. You've got the ancestors of the Spanish people who've come. You have, because of the building of the canal, you have a large Chinese population that was brought over, mostly that came over during the French uh, initial digging of the canal. Then the Americans took over back in the turn of the last century to building the canal. And their biggest labor force was the Afro-Caribbeans from Barbados, Jamaica, from Trinidad, from all many places in the Caribbean that attracted people to come in. And all these cultures had to mix in a place like I haven't seen anywhere else. And I haven't been to Brazil. And from my image of Brazil is that it's an equally mixed place that that you just, you basically have every color of the rainbow represented in in mankind and womankind. (laughs) So that was absolutely fascinating. And the canal, I'm not an engineer, but I I still couldn't help but being amazed by the whole thing. But as a former archaeologist, I'm now a teacher, but I started out as an archaeologist. The canal actually is what we have to get across the isthmus. But the fascinating thing that I didn't know was the Spaniards came in. In fact, Columbus was the first outsider to so-called, you know, quote unquote, discover Panama. I think it was his second journey. He stopped there. And very soon, within decades of his explorations, Spaniards came and they basically conquered, right, the whole uh, Central and South America. And they saw Panama the same way we do. Aha, here's this isthmus, this is the shortest way across these continents, rather than going all the way around Cape Horn. So they didn't have a canal, but they built the Camino Real. So it's actually, you can go today and see the cobblestone path that kind of disappears into the jungle that was built in the 1600s by the Spaniards. And why did they build it? They were basically robbing South America of all the gold and silver they could find. There was incredibly productive silver mines in Bolivia. I think La Mina is one of them. There's another one. That Those plundered treasures of the native people, who is the whole sad story in itself, those plundered treasures were brought up on the Pacific side by ship, and then uh, back in in the 1600s, put on mule trains and brought across the isthmus, exactly the same way we have the canal, you know, in the spirit of the thing, across the isthmus, and then reloaded onto ships waiting on on the Caribbean side. 
so my first introduction to that was the town of Portobello, where you can see they have a customs house where they would count the gold and silver. And apparently one third of the world's silver at that time was passing through that very customs house. And you can go there today. Mm-hmm. So being there, being confronted by the modern, well, the semi-modern <laughs> Panama Canal and this, the, the history that goes behind it, in, as an imaginative person, in no time I had a story spinning of uh, the Spaniard, a Spaniard who stumbles across part of this treasure coming up from South America, that's the silver spider, mixed with the worker on the Panama Canal who now discovers that buried treasure, so to speak, that was never gotten out by the Spanish conquistadors. The, the, so in 1912, we've got our, our canal worker discovering it. And in the modern era, we have his great, great, his great grandson sailing innocently to Panama, not even knowing the connection and eventually coming across that same uh, treasure, which is not the point of, of Panama for everybody. But in, being in a place like that, you almost can't come up. You can't help but coming up with just fun stories of what might happen if and combining all of what you see play out in your in front of your eyes, in a sense, even the history you can still see there. Oh, I love that. And of course, I write all my fiction is set based on my travels too. So I love that. And uh, we'll obviously have links to all your books in the show notes. But uh, this is the books and travel show. So apart from your own books, what are a few that you recommend around sailing or travel in general? Absolutely. I have, I mean, you can't carry much on a boat, <laughs> but one uh, one book that I took on uh, with me the whole time was a book I've owned since I was 16. It's called Maiden Voyage by Tanya Abbey. And she at, I think, 17 or 18 set off to sail around the world and became the youngest person and I think the youngest woman in addition to sail around the world. That was in the, she did it in the 80s. Fantastic book. And, and it's, it's very much her emotional journey, a young woman growing up, difficult family life, setting off on this incredibly difficult adventure to do by yourself. So that is just an inspiring book, whether you're an armchair adventurer or you're a sailor. Other books for sailing and the Pacific, Thor Heyerdahl, um, the Norwegian explorer. I read his Fatu Hiva when I was a kid. My dad read it and he gave it to me. And that's an island in the Marquesas. It's basically the only way you can get there is by your own boat. Uh, there's one other way you can get on a cargo ship and go there, but there's no other way to get there. And he spent, uh, Thor Heyerdahl spent a, a year living there in the 50s, I believe. And of course, his book, Contiki, where he sailed across part of the Pacific in a reproduction craft. His theories have been proven completely wrong, but to me, that spirit, that let's go out and discover it, is it's just on every page. So I, I love those for fiction, I actually love Jimmy Buffett's book. He, we think of him as a, as a singer, but he's written a couple of books, including A Salty Piece of Land. Now, it's not Shakespeare. <laughs> it's pretty far-fetched. It's a little bit zany, but it's just, it's just such fun reading. And it includes places like the beautiful lighthouse on Amade um, in New Caledonia. So that's another one. Finally, for sailing would be, there's a great book called Sea Change by Peter Nichols. And he was, um, he was sailing across the Atlantic on a very small wooden boat. This is in the wake of his divorce. And this is, I think it was published in the nineties or, or early two thousands. So it's just his account, his memoir of sailing alone across the Atlantic and working through the emotions of that at the same time that his boat is developing problem after problem and eventually starts sinking. And it's just an incredible, it pulls everything together without being sensationalistic about it. So those are my top sailing reads. And I'll also just rattle off three quick titles 
for people interested in Panama, so much fascinating, fascinating things there. There's The Path Between the Seas by David McCullough, which is the story of the building of the Panama Canal. It's 700 pages. <laughs> I read it for those 28 days that we sailed <laughs> from, from the Galapagos to the Marquesas. Great book. Zone Policeman 88. It's a very strange title. Zone Policeman 88 by Harry Frank. It's a free book on Amazon. He, in the 1912-ish, was writing a census of the Panama Canal workers. And he went around. It's his memoir of visiting all the different people of all those cultures that I mentioned working on the canal in different ways. So it's I think it's a Project Gutenberg that brings old titles and makes them free. Mm. Um, Zone Policeman 88 is one of those. And another one is, last one, On the Spanish Main by John Maysfield. The Panama Canal workers in the early 1900s were reading that eagerly. He wrote about the time of Sir Francis Drake coming and plundering the Spanish loot coming across the isthmus many centuries before. And it's about 100 years old to us now, that book. And that is also free on places like Amazon and not only Amazon, obviously, um, on the Spanish main. So that is my top, whatever, top 10 list or top six or whatever, <laughs> whatever that came out to be. Oh, that's brilliant. And uh, yeah, you've given us a lot to think about. So where can people find you and your books online? I have a website, nslavinsky.com. So n, like Nadine, slavinsky.com. And that's where my books are, whether it's my fiction books like The Silver Spider or my nonfiction like Pacific Crossing Notes, or I have some books on homeschooling for sailors. If you happen to be setting off tomorrow with your children <laughs> and people who just want the armchair adventure, our sailing blog is namani at sea.org. So namani is it's basically our initials, Nadine, Marcus, Nikki, Namani at all spelled out c.org. You can just, you can relive our voyage if you were interested in doing so. Fantastic. Thanks so much for your time, Nadine. That was great. Great talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.